we come to uh, our study together and uh, you'll notice that uh, we carried over in the bulletin we I've been carrying over the theme of the entire study which is these are they and I have been adding nothing more than the lecture number uh, I don't know I haven't looked on sermon audio Brother John's adding titles or not. Certainly, if you'd like to, brother, feel free. Put whatever title you might like, or none at all. Uh, I have merely been identifying these by the lecture numbers. Now, by the way, my number may not match Goldsworthy's numbers. I may sometimes make two lectures out of one of his, or I may make one lecture out of two of his, so my number may not correspond necessarily with his number in terms of the lectures themselves. But yeah, it is in this lecture chapter, or lecture five, uh, that Goldsworthy introduces to us the principal concept, which will be the platform for showing the continuity of the whole Bible. If you remember, that's been my whole purpose that's been my whole goal this is what I've told you is a reason why I've undertaken this study this particular study with you is to 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 I want to emphasize to us here at this church and to put your feet firmly uh, on solid ground with regards to the unity and continuity of the Bible it is not we have an Old and New Testament, but the Bible is not a uh, a great big uh, smorgasbord of dispensations. Uh, there is, in fact, one and only one theme for uh, in the Scripture, in the whole of the Scripture, from that first proto-evangelum in Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. There's one and only one theme and purpose, and that is to reveal these are they. That's why I titled the series that way. These are they that testify of me, the Lord said. These scriptures, this principle of unity, and I said, I just said now, a minute ago, that in lecture five, Goldsworthy introduces the principal concept, the principal concept, which is his platform, and that is my word, not his. I use the word platform. The principal concept, which is his platform, for showing that the the continuity of the whole Bible, and specifically of the Old Testament's connection to the New. And he, he says, uh, to use his words now, his, uh, the, the platform, that he has to show the unity of the Bible is, quote, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that platform. That will be the thread. The kingdom of God will be the thread that flows through all of the record of the history of redemption, the kingdom of God. Now, follow, follow that with me by looking at his own thoughts, uh, beginning at page 52. 
We're looking at the fact of this con the continuity of the unity of the scriptures being the kingdom of God, that thread that runs right through all of the different eras of time covered in the scripture. In on page 52, Goldsworthy said, leaving aside for the moment the question of what is revealed, what is revealed between the fall of man and the beginning of the Hebrew nation. In other words, he's going to skip over, make no comment. He's just going to make no comment about what may or may not have been revealed in that period of time from Genesis 4 through Genesis 11. We now examine the call of Abraham. He picks up there. God's promise to Abraham expressed in Genesis 12 and subsequent chapters provides one of the central themes of the Bible. The form of the promise described as covenant is essentially an agreement between two parties. But this is no ordinary human covenant involving mutual consent of equals. But it is a lordly covenant dispensed by the gracious act of a God greatly offended and sinned against. The covenant is an agreement in the sense that the recipient must agree to any terms that may be proposed. But before all else, we must see this covenant is one of grace. It is undeserved favor. God's promises to, to Abraham involve these three things. A people that are his descendants, a land that, in which they'll live, and a relationship that they will have with their God. Now, it is, he says this, here, here, we're, here we are, when we get to Genesis 12, we have begun to see this theme of the kingdom of God beginning to unfold in Revelation, in, in God's revelation, divine revelation, and it begins with the unfolding of this concept of a covenant. Now, covenant, he says, is, is a, an agreement between parties. But he specifies, although he doesn't enlarge on it as much as I would have, uh, but he does mention that what's distinct and unique with this covenant is whereas a covenant among men is a covenant among equals. He uses that terminology. But this covenant is not a covenant between equals. This is a covenant between God and man. And so it is a divine covenant. It's a divine covenant. And so immediately, if we're talking about, and we are, we're looking at talking about revelation. In looking at revelation, already we learn, right here at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 12, with this covenant with Abraham, already we are introduced to this fact, this aspect of the revelation, that it is from the divine side. It is a divine revelation. This kingdom of God is a kingdom of divinity. It is God's kingdom. And the covenants he forms are his covenants. And so there is this divine aspect to the revelation. But this covenant with Abraham specifically, he says and points out, has these three 
characteristics about it. Here's some of the, the characteristics contained in this covenant is that it will involve Abraham and his descendants as his people. It will involve a land to which they specifically are led and given. And it will involve a relationship with God that they shall be God's people. These are the three, you might say, kind of overshadowing characteristics of this relationship, of this covenant. Then he says, this covenant relationship then consists in being called the people of God. Every later expression of this relationship stems from the original covenant. We discovered that this promise to the forefathers of Israel becomes the basis of the relationship of all the people of God in the Bible. Even in the New Testament, the concept of being the children of Abraham is transferred to those who by faith embrace the gospel, Galatians 3.29. Every Christian is a son or a daughter of Abraham, spiritually. Later we shall look at the different areas where the covenant is given distinct expressions in the Old Testament. Now, now, to understand the covenant, we must examine its contents and its terms. The content of the covenant, like the goal of redemption, is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. This, and all he's, all he's doing here is showing you the continuity of this theme. It's about the kingdom of God. Since the covenant is related to our redemption as the children of God, what is the kingdom of God? The New Testament has a great deal to say about the kingdom, but we may best understand this concept in terms of the relationship of ruler to subject. That is, number one, there is a king who rules. Number two, there are a people who are ruled. And number three, there's a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. Put it another way, the kingdom of God involves God's people, God's place, and God's rule. Now, we can apply that. You know, I'm jumping way ahead here because he's way back over in Genesis 12 talking about the Abrahamic covenant. But can we not see the continuity? And he's already mentioned it. Right straight through Galatians 3.29 to the New Testament. These are the same three characteristics of the church, right? Number one, there is a king who rules. <laughs> Can we say that of the church? There's a people that are ruled. Can we say that of the church, the ecclesia? And there's a sphere where this rule is recognized. Well, certainly, we can apply that to the church as well. So you see the continuity, the unity. He said, given this base, basic analysis, and that's all it is. It's not a thorough exposition. It's just a basic analysis. Given this basic analysis, it is clear that the fact that the term kingdom of God does not occur in the Old Testament is unimportant. The basic idea is woven through the whole of Scripture. One of the problems with the hermeneutic, hermeneutical method 
of, of much of Christendom. Uh, we maybe too much pick on fundamentalism, but it's that that I have the most familiarity with. One of the grave errors of uh, the hermeneutic of so many denominations and religion is that they fail to see this continuity. They fail to see, they, they want to, to, to dissect each scripture and, and, dis, and, and separate it from the whole, focus there, get, get, get all kind of meanings out of a, a scripture text in one location with blinders on to the whole context and to the bigger picture. Which is, of course, the kingdom of God. His, his intent to, to build his kingdom among men. And he says the basic idea, the basic idea of, of kingdom of God is woven throughout the whole of scripture. It doesn't matter that that particular word or term is not used. We all know, of course, the word Trinity is nowhere used in the Bible. That doesn't mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is not correct. We draw the doctrine of the Trinity from the whole Bible, the, the whole revelation, and, and tying it all together. He said, we first see the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. Now, of course, a dispensationalist would have a real indigestion with that statement. They say, whoa, 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 no, no, the kingdom of God... You don't even see it. That's not even used. That word's not even used to way over here. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. The, the unity. We see the kingdom of God. That is, go back and look how he described it. Go back and look at the components that it, it involves. A king that rules, a people that are ruled, and a sphere in which he, they're ruled. If that is the definition of the kingdom of God, then we can go all the way back <laughs> to Adam and Eve and we can find it. We can find the elements. We first see the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. Here Adam and Eve live in willing obedience to the word of God and to God's rule. In this setting, the kingdom is destroyed by the sin of man and the rest of the Bible is about the restoration of a people to be the willing subjects of the perfect rule of God. Okay? Matthew Henry, this term, kingdom of God, I just wanted to read you uh, Matthew Henry commenting on, I just photographed it out of the commentary, uh, commenting on Matthew chapter 3, uh, down to about verse 6, verse 5. Commenting on it, Matthew Henry said, The people who attended upon him and flocked after him, now this is, Matthew Henry commenting at, uh, uh, on Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, then he, which says, Then went 
out to him Jerusalem and all Judea. Henry says, great multitudes came to him from the city and from all parts of the country, some of all sorts, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, Pharisees and publicans. They went out to him as soon as they heard his preaching, and the scripture uses the term here, the kingdom of heaven. That they might hear what they heard so much of. Now, this was a great honor put upon John that so many attended him and with much respect. This was an evidence that it was now time for a time of great expectation. It was generally thought that the, quote, kingdom of God would presently appear. We know that. You can read it in Luke 19 and verse 11. They expected the kingdom of God to appear then, right then. And therefore, when John showed himself to Israel, lived and preached at this rate, so very different from the scribes and Pharisees, they were ready to say of him that he was the Christ, Luke 3.15. This occasion, such a confluence of people about him. That's why so many people came to hear him. So there was this, thus you pick up that phrase, the kingdom of God. But we can go back. Goldsworthy's point is, if, if you're looking at the kingdom of God in its essence and in its components, you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve and find the kingdom of God. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let me just read that. Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is that, that is that, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, uh, and Goldsworthy says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God promises the patriarchs of their, that their descendants, that's the people, will possess the promised land, that's the place, and be the people of God underneath his authority. That's God's rule among the people. There's your three elements right there. The historical process by which the people are brought into that situation takes the form of a redemptive act of God. God redeems Israel when he rescues it out of captivity in Egypt. So, already, he's, he says, he starts with Abraham, but he also reaches back. He says, look, starting, look at Abraham. Look at the covenant brought about with Abraham. And what do you see in that covenant? All the elements of the kingdom of God. Then he says, actually, you can go back to the Garden of Eden. And you will find there the three elements of the kingdom of God 
there. And of course, you certainly do. And what he's doing is he's moving, he's just very quickly, not doing great in-depth history here, he's just very quickly moving us through time to show us this continuity that it is about the kingdom of God and he's defined that for us. Then he moves to the monarchy on page 54. Israel's golden age comes during the period of monarchy when northern and southern kingdoms united as one nation. The political, economic, religious achievement of the kingdom of David and Solomon fulfills in very tangible way the promises to Abraham. This kingdom is by no means perfect, but it displays all the elements of the kingdom of God. So a pattern is emerging, he said. The revelation of God's kingdom begins with a very specific promise to Abraham and then moves through a process of fulfillment which includes a redemptive experience, the exodus, climaxes in a fulfillment, the monarchy. This last stage contains some things not even specifically stated in the original promise, such as the city of Zion, the temple, and the kingship of David. So now he's moved us forward through the monarchy. And he says, just look at the monarchy, and what do you have? You have all of the elements of the kingdom of God. Then the prophetic. Solomon's kingdom, page 55, fails, and this serves to underline what's been apparent all along that the historical process from Abraham to Solomon always falls short of the glory of God's true kingdom, even though it reveals the nature of that kingdom. In the face of the judgment upon Israel's sin, the prophets restate the promise of the kingdom as something that will be fulfilled in the future. Now you can read for yourself I won't take the time and read it. You can read page 55, 56, 57. And he moves straight forward on through all the way to the New Testament. The kingdom of God is at hand announced in Mark chapter 1 verse 4. He introduces the gospel as bringing near the kingdom of God. And it's at hand. And the New Testament describes very places of future for consummation of the kingdom where the people of God know fully and by sight that which they already know by faith and so this theme of the kingdom of God is carried right through to through the New Testament now he has a little chart there figure 5 on page 56 uh, this is one of the things he really does uh, well uh, I think goes where they creates all these charts and, and uh, graphics and so forth and uh, that's that is uh, his introduction on page fifty four. I shared with you the introduction to his treatment of this kingdom, the composition of it, the components in it. Uh, and so, by the time we get to the end of page fifty seven, where he has demonstrated the continuity of this theme of the kingdom of God. Once he gets to there, now he has set the stage 
to actually back up, dive in, and start to unfold this revelation. Uh, uh, starts to, I say unfold, starts to unfold, or if you please, technically, he starts to uh, show the unfolding of this revelation as being a revelation of the kingdom of God. So by the time you get to the end of page 57, the stage is set. He's ready now to, as I say, dive in and start to express in detail how this Old Testament progressively moves along in unfolding the kingdom of God. And by the way, uh, I have mentioned it before, but just by way of clarity, and in case people get a bit, get 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 a, a recording of this that, that that aren't here, weren't in other lectures, uh, I always everything I do out of Goldsworthy, I I have a uh, disclaimer. <laughs> I, I don't approve, I don't agree with a number of things. His beginning of, of Lecture 5, uh, there on page 51, where he deals with the image of God. In fact, I have that entire thing marked completely out in my book. Uh, I, I think he gets way off on the deep end there. I'm not at all in, the, in agreement with uh, some of what he says there. So, I say again to you, all that I recommend for you is what I am extracting and bringing to you from his work. I think it's a worthy work, and I'm glad that we have it to use. Uh, but I do not mean to say by that, that by, I by any means agree with everything Goldsworthy has to say. I certainly don't agree with his ideas concerning the image of God, etc., but that's just a disclaimer. I just want you to know, again, uh, we're not using him in the same way that we would use John Bunyan. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I just don't even read or look at the sections where I don't think that, that's helpful. Uh, I, I brought a copy, photocopy as well, just of the, uh, the index in the front of uh, uh, Gill's Body of Divinity in 1767. And I, I, I bracketed, I just wanted you to, to see, of course, his Body of Divinity is broken down into books, you know, book one, book two, book three. Book three is of the external works of God. Book two was of the acts and works of God. Book four is of the grace, of the acts of the grace of God towards and upon his elect in time. And it's interesting that 1667, uh, this is John Gill, his, his body, of, uh, body of doctrinal divinity. That chapter is covered under the following headings. Listen to these headings. There is a section of the manifestation and administration of the covenant of grace. Secondly, of the covenant of grace in the uh, patriarchal state, of the covenant of grace under the Mosaic dispensation, of the covenant of grace in the times of David and the prophets, 
of the abrogation of the old covenant, of the law, and of the gospel. So you see, uh, and of course, if you read all, <laughs> you read all those chapters, you'd find yourself doing a good bit of reading. But the point, the reason I wanted to show that to you, and the point I'm making there with you, is to show you that such great theologians, John Gill, incontested, probably the greatest theologian, Baptist of all history, he, by his very method of dealing with the covenant of grace, he's seeing it moving, consistent, through all these periods of time. He goes he goes from the patriarchs to well actually from eternity in the covenant of grace to the patriarchs to Moses to David to the prophets to the law to the gospel. He he's he show that shows in Gill's thinking the continuity, the unity of this revelation. And what I hope I'm doing here, if nothing else, uh, in this class, I hope I'm proving to you that, that you, you cannot segment the Bible. You, you, you do not use a method of interpretation or hermeneutic that allows you to segment portions out and create doctrines out of isolated texts. You have to see the unity and continuity and the whole picture first. And the whole picture is the kingdom of God and the revelation of his, the history of redemption. It's all about Christ. These are they that testify of me. So everything there, all the Old Testament and all the New is all there to testify of Christ and his kingdom. And it's about that revelation. And that's the whole point of this lecture. That's the whole point of all this study is to demonstrate to you. And I just used Gill. I'm just using Dr. Gill as an illustration that the great theologians of all time have understood the scriptures in this way. This is how they viewed it, notwithstanding what some loud voices in our day would say to you. Oh, that's, that's Old Testament. That's no, that's no, you're not understanding. God's that. No, 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 no. You're not understanding the unity and continuity of it all. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Simple, simple lecture. All right? Questions and further comments? I think there is one other important disclaimer on this particular chapter from a Baptist perspective, anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
Before the cross. Right. The Lord made that abundantly clear when he said, You may be the descendant of Abraham, but you are not his children. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Paul has got that same thought, the entirety of Galatians chapter 3, dealing with that very argument that it is not the physical descendants of Abraham who are his children, it is the spiritual descendants that always has been. That is what Genesis chapter 12 deals with. Genesis chapter 17 specifically addresses the physical descendants and how they would be treated, if you will, uh, from that point forward in the economy of God's covenants. Yeah, but then he says, he says in the next sentence, every Christian is a son or daughter of Abraham. But yes, it, it'd be very easy for one not suspecting to convolute these things and pedo-baptism be able to be drawn from it. Uh, which I assume, I think I, I have it somewhere, I have his biography somewhere. Uh, yes, uh, he is a Union Presbyterian, Presbyterian Seminary, so he was by by all accounts certainly a Pado-Baptist. Goldsworthy I'm talking about was a Pado-Baptist, and he puts a almost Pado-Baptist slant on that comment. Uh, if you didn't know he was a Pado-Baptist, you might not pick up on it. But it, it, he does put a Pedro Baptist slant on it. So, yeah, and that comes through with Goldsworthy, not just here, but multiple places. I mean, a Pedro Baptist can't 
help it. <laughs> they can't help themselves. Uh, they will, they will convolute the difference, the, the, the workings of this covenant of grace and distinguishing it from the physical covenant with Abraham. John's pointing out you have a physical uh, covenant with the man, with the nation, etc. And then there's the spiritual covenant of grace, which, as John said, even in the Old Testament, not all that were of Israel were true Israelites. Not all men who were Israelites were real were sons of sons of Abraham in the spiritual sense. As if Abraham's our the father of faith then only the sons who have faith are actual sons of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And you don't, want to, you don't want to get that confused. Not only is it true today, we are sons of Abraham by faith. It was equally true before the New Testament that only the sons of faith in this Jehovah were true sons of Abraham. And as John pointed out, our Lord put their nose on that. He himself preached to them. You are not. You may be physical sons of Abraham, but you're not spiritual sons of Abraham because that's only by faith. And a Pado baptist I don't care what subject they're writing on, any subject they're writing on, they're going to convolute, blur the lines, and confuse those two things. And that's a, that's a good thing, good point for John to make. Any other questions, comments on this section? We can learn a lot in these classes by refuting error <laughs> as much as by teaching truth.